0: I'm Dan Kimbrough and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. And welcome back. Today, I am honored to actually get some of Glennis's time. Um, we have with us as a guest, Glennis Johns, who is the founder and CEO of the Black Scranton Project, which we'll get into what that is and why that is important. Um, but today's conversation really is going to be looking at the idea of Black history and how do we reframe it. Um, and you know what? I'm going to let Glynis explain Black Scranton when we get to it. But a little bit about Glennis: Glenn's graduated from Scranton High School in 2011, correct? Yes. And your goal was to get as far away from Scranton, Pennsylvania, as humanly possible, which is New York for anyone on the East Coast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You go to school in New York, um, you get your undergraduate degree, you start working on a master's, start looking at a Ph.D., and you start looking at black history and start thinking back onto Scranton where you've been told numerous times, well, black people aren't really from Scranton. Like if you're if you're black in Scranton, your family must have moved here. You're not from here. This isn't really where you're from. And doing your own research, you start to figure out Black people are from Scranton. And so um, talk a little bit about, you know, before we get into Black Scranton Project, what, what were you told that made you really believe that Black people weren't from Scranton?
1: Right. Um, a combination of being told and from lived experience. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, it's a predominantly white city. So even in classrooms, yes, there might be two or three kids sprinkled amongst your classes, However, it always felt very white Um, to the point where even during Black History Month or MLK Day, teachers were able to use the past as, hey, like, we don't know that much about Black History Month, so we're not going to do any presentations. That's not my expertise. Wow. Um, yeah, that's happened. Um, And just like, it, it, I feel like it's part of the environment to feel like, oh, Scranton is kind of crappy and there's nothing really here. And then being a person of color. Growing up, you know, watching television, seeing BET, having it or not, because it doesn't come with your basic cable package, you know?
0: <laughs> right, so. right.
1: I lived for the times when I got to go to Philly, New York, or Baltimore to visit Cousins so I can sit in front of their TV set all day Mm -hmm. and watch 106 and Park and all that stuff. So it was very evident growing up here that there wasn't an opportunity to experience Black culture here and that it wasn't generally accepted as the mainstream culture. So growing up, I already internalized that, that this is a white city that celebrates Irish and Italian culture first and foremost, and everything else sits in the background of that. And most people, regardless of your race, too, as a teenager in high school, a lot of us would daydream amongst each other, like, yeah, we can't wait to leave this city. We hate it. It's boring. There's nothing here. There's nothing exciting. Um, And I think that is like a similar experience for young people, Mm -hmm. but especially black people. And not having any black teachers until I went to college was a game changer. Um, My first black professor, rest in peace, Dr. Roderick Bush. Um, he's the one who was basically like, yeah, you'd fit right into the sociology department. And I'm very familiar with Scranton. The Greyhound goes through there, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it does.
0: Yeah, what you know? You know? So I was
1: like, all right. Um, And then my second Black, oh, my first Black female teacher, um, my mentor, Dr. Natalie P. Byfield, literally took me under her wing. And I saw myself in her and I realized, like, I could do whatever I want. Like, I never imagined seeing Black women in a space of professionalism and like Mm -hmm. having degrees and having a PhD and commanding this classroom and doing groundbreaking research, you know? And I was just like, so amazed. And as an undergrad that kind of like fueled me a little bit to feel like I can do whatever I want. Like I'm not limited to certain career paths because of who I am. And um, it's kind of sad that a lot of people end up leaving the area, not coming back, but leaving the area and realizing that, it was like systematically put in place for you to not feel like you have a culture or an identity. Right,
0: right, um, right.
1: And once I started my master's degree and was looking at sociology in practice, um, the root of my graduate thesis actually wasn't even history. It was to use the historical perspectives to kind of um, come up with this historic, this, uh, sociological analysis as to why the black community is seen as transient, why we're not seen as participants in the community, why we're always looked at as invisible. That's kind of where I was going. Mm -hmm. And I was using the historical evidence to prove that, but I didn't know that was going to suck me in so much. (laughs) And that I was just going to be obsessed with history from that point forward. So, um, yeah, that's a long-winded Roundabout way <laughs> no, to answer no. the question.
0: <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um and I like what you said about the idea that if for most people, when you hear about black history in in, in their towns, you know, it's a transient history because clearly black people aren't from there. Mm-hmm. Which I think is something that and I'm from the Midwest uh, you know, and graduated years before you, but I think back in I don't even know the history of my own hometown when it comes to black history mm-hmm. because that wasn't taught. And I think most Black people in America, you know, when February rolls around, you learn Black history and it's always the big names, right? It's mm-hmm. always the the easy ones for a teacher to pull out of the Rolodex and well, all right, we're going to talk about Martin Luther King or we're going to talk about Rosa Parks and this and that. And the idea of doing the work and saying, well, who's local? I don't know any community unless it's in Atlanta or New York, you know, something like that nature where it's clearly embedded in that um, Mm -hmm. community where you're going to learn about local black people and the work they've done. And so what did this lead you to then sort of in looking at going from this larger scale of black communities being invisible to coming back into Scranton? How did that lead you there?
1: Yeah. So I think it's also important to note that like, there wasn't just this like golden envelope of this black right. history that I just, you know, pulled out of some dusty attic and then like, <laughs> voila, no, absolutely not. Like that was a thing. I didn't think this would take me anywhere. I thought in the beginning, back in twenty late 2015,
0: mm-hmm. when I
1: started this project, that I would be like, well, there's nothing here. And so, yep, that's why we're transient. Because everything you guys do is to make us invisible, period, short and sweet, and then like go from there. But as I started to dig, obviously you find bits and pieces here. But one thing that I found really interesting about when I was doing this research project, I would go to the library, historical society, the anthracite museum, um, anywhere that had archives, and I would just ask them a simple question. Please show me anything that you have that relates to Black people in Scranton or NEPA. Anything you have, whatever it is. And most times they would say, we don't have anything like that. Or why Why do you think we would have anything like that? That's like finding a needle in a haystack, or, you know, <laughs> just different things like that. Um, the librarians though, at the library, the Scranton Public Library were also really um, helpful. They're like, well, we don't really have anything, but here are some ways that you can start doing some investigation. Here are some older women who sit up and look through newspapers, talk to them. Um, so that also kind of, Spilled into how I was doing my investigation and my research, but it was very frustrating that you go to all these archives that boast, you know, having this like ethnic diverse collection of Scranton's <laughs> history, all the stuff we've been doing here Lithuanians, Welsh, and Polish, and we have it all, we have it all. And you go there and you're like, hey, like, what do you have on Black people? Ooh, ah, no. And then they get so <laughs> uncomfortable. And so, as a sociologist, that's where I was, you know, I was. I was investigating, I was doing research I was in the field. So I was trying to like document that as like part of my analysis is like, this is a response when you even ask people, Mm -hmm. what do you know about black people? Everyone gets uncomfortable just bringing it up in general, or even trying to claim it as like an identity in the area. So, well, um,
0: and for and so, for those listening who aren't from the East Coast, so NEPA, she says is northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, and we talk about the anthracite uh and anthracite coal region. Uh, this area provided coal from pretty much the entire country for the long for a long time, um, and that coal the people who mined the coal were a lot of Eastern European countries, and so it's something that I had to, took me a while to get used to here. Even mm-hmm. is that when people talk about ethnic things here in northeastern Pennsylvania, they're talking about Eastern European, like mm-hmm. the, the the amount like white. Really gets broken down here, and so you've got a Russian community next to a Russian community next to a German community, and you've got the Lithuanians, and like they all share share dif- various, a lot of similar things, but they pronounce them differently or do things differently. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yes, if you go look up ethnic things here in northeastern Pennsylvania, there's going to be a plethora of it, but it's all going to be about white people
1: white because. Ethnic- Yep. Right,
0: that the white ethnic background, and so I find it, and I find that really interesting. And it took me a long time because people were like, "Whoa, well, we have all these ethnicities here," and I'm like, "You're all white. What are you talking and how about?"
1: How many of them actually know the culture <laughs> which they claim?
0: Exactly, and I
1: think that's a controversial thing too because. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of conversations where people are like, oh, like I, yeah, like for, well, we can use the popular ones. I am Irish and like my family has been so Irish. And I'm like, okay, what, what is like your favorite, like Irish dish? Like what's an Irish tradition that you guys continue doing your family? Oh, well, we're not Irish. I don't know anything. You know, right. you know? so it's always interesting to me that in this area Scranton specifically, it's very selective on how we identify as even like embracing culture. And it usually has to do around, like, I don't know like alcohol or-
0: Yeah, they're all Irish in the spring.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know? So um, I just really wanted to, like I really wanted to like create a document, like something to be like, look, this is what we have. Um, And shout out to Chimesy Williams, uh, James, AKA Chimesy Williams. Mm -hmm. He actually wrote a, a compilation of local black history I wouldn't say it was like the best thing, but it was an effort and he really tried and it was called um, Northern fried chicken and basically talked about his recollection of Scranton's history and who was there. And that led me honestly to a lot of things that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. He put together a list of black veterans. He put together a list of black professionals. He put together stories and anecdotes of what he knew from growing up. And I thought it was really magnificent. And um I kind of just took what he had and kind of expanded upon it, and also like he would just give a name, and I would try and see who was the person behind this name, and then that kind of helped me snowball out into some of the stories that I've been still trying to compile, (laughs) articulate. But
0: no, and it's it's a daunting task, especially given that I think in a lot of communities. The Black history in most communities was hidden or erased, whether through redlining or eminent domain Mm -hmm. or You know, pick your legal phrase that you want to use, but that a lot of it got sort of pushed to the side and removed and and erased. And so finding documents about it is going to, as you said, it's hard to do because now you're going down rabbit holes and trying to figure these things out. So um, before we get to Black Scranton Project, can you tell me some of the stories that you found? I know there was the one of the the Hook and Ladder, there's the G.W. Brown store. You know, what what kind of stories did you find about Scranton?
1: Oh, so many stories. Um, Those are two of my favorites. what stories? Uh, recently, I've been talking about a different story because what I try to do every year is like pull one other story out and like mm-hmm. continue to tell it, <laughs> so okay. that what people okay. can think about some new ones. One story that I was t- was well, a New Year, so I actually, I guess I haven't started any new stories <laughs> yet. But uh, one story that I've been pulling back out because I think it's really relevant when we talk about um, inclusion and in neighborhoods and communities and like what that look like, mm-hmm. and when we talk about diverse communities and how we celebrate them. So uh, there is this man, his name was Thomas E. Howes. And in the early 1900s, he came to Scranton in 1906 and he came from British Guyana and he was the first black man to become a naturalized citizen through Scranton's nationalization courts. What? Yeah, pretty cool, pretty wild. Um, And also, which is a little gem, a little fun fact about that time that year, 1906 was also one of the hardest years to become a naturalized citizen of the United States because of the influx of people coming in through Ellis Island and like changing different things. And so I always think that it's pretty impressive that this black man from this black island (laughs) was able to become. A a U.S. citizen in Scranton and chose Scranton first. He didn't live anywhere else. He literally got off this boat and came to Scranton and he lived over on Albright Avenue. And then he, his house, the roof on his house, like collapsed or something. Mm -hmm. And he was actually a bookskeeper for GW Brown, Dre and company, which was like a black owned trucking and hauling company. Mm -hmm. And he worked for them as a bookskeeper. He became a naturalized citizen, in two, 2011, 1911. <laughs> and a few months after that, that was early spring, March, I believe, he became a nationalized citizen. And then by the summertime, he was like, okay, I'm going to buy a house and, you know, do my thing. I'm a United States citizen. I have a well-paying job. My house just got messed up. I'm going to buy a house in the hill section of Scranton, um, which is considered the east side of the city of Scranton. So he buys a home on Prescott Avenue and no problem. The buyer, the the seller sold it to him. No problem. Knew that he had a really well respect, well-paying job respected amongst the black community and other people and yada, yada, yada. He got the property. He moved to the 900 block of Prescott Avenue. And the second he got there, he was the first black resident on the block. And as soon as he got up there, the residents were like, absolutely not. We don't want this Negro to live with amongst us. It's going to bring down our property values and it's going to be violent. And the newspapers was talking about how uh, the white residents wanted to put a fence around his property, paint it black on one side, white on the other side, and throw bottles through his windows and all this stuff. So um, after this uproar, it was in the newspapers like every day. It was like a hot topic. So the neighbors of Prescott Avenue got together at what is present day Prescott Elementary School. They gathered there. They asked Thomas E. Howes to come and sit down there. He comes to the meeting and they were basically like, we will give you $1,300 to get out of the neighborhood. And in the headline in the Scranton Times, it said $1,300 to get Negro out. And I was like, whoa. And I found that headline right when Get Out was coming out. So I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what is this? So um, it was so intriguing. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, get out from where? And I read that they were trying to pay him to get out of the neighborhood. So $1,300 in today's money is close to about 20K, I think. Um, with inflation, it's a Mm -hmm. lot of money. Maybe it's not that much. It's, it's a lot of money. So he was like, um, I don't know. It cost me about $3,200 to, you know, move, move in, get a truck, all this stuff and pay all the closing costs for this house. Maybe if you guys come up with the $3,200, I will consider. (laughs) They leave the meeting. Two weeks later, Prescott Avenue was able to get $3,200 in cash from residents and I thought that was astonishing. Number one, it's so much money. Um, so he got $3,200. They sat him down again at the school, press everywhere. Now it's the entire community. It's packed in there, in the, in the auditorium. Everyone wants to know what's going on. So he gets there. They tell him, we don't want you here. We don't want Negroes in our neighborhood. Y'all live downtown in the slums, in the courts, and alleys. You can't live amongst us, blah, 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 blah. He sits there. He listens. And after everyone has said their thing, he says, um, I'm going to live here. Y'all can keep your money. Um, I've never lived in the courts, alleys or slums. I'm not going to continue to do it now. Y'all keep your change. And everybody fell out in the auditorium and it was like a whole thing. Um, The newspaper said that they gave him some protections. Doubt. I don't know what that means, but he lived in that property for about 10 years after that. He worked in the city of Scranton. He also was a community advocate. He worked on getting voting rights. He um, was one of the trustees at Bethel AME Church. So he did a lot of community work alongside of that. But um, about 11 or 12 years after this incident, he moved to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually started his own business in Scranton. It was another trucking and hauling company to which he called How's Your Trucking Company? Well, How's Your Drying Company, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was kind of fun. And then he brought his business to Philly. And then I kind of lost track from him from there. He passed away in the 1950s. So he lived a pretty full life. But um, I like to think that uh, Thomas E. House was the first person to help try to integrate the Hill section. And now we know it as one of our most diverse neighborhoods in the city of Scranton. And um, I tried to get a historical marker from the state, but it got declined. But right. you know, it's never too late.
0: Right, right. Um, so many things in that story. I love the fact that he sent them out, made them go get the money, and then was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. I was <laughs> I like, that is badass work. for real. <laughs> um one of the things that but another thing that I love, and I've heard you tell a couple of these stories, is is the level of detail you relate this to. So and for those again who aren't in NEPA, who don't live in Scranton, the city, the street names may not mean much, but when you're listening to this, like, I could see where you're talking about, right? Like, I know the streets, I know the intersections. And I think that it's powerful that you've not only, you're not just telling people this person existed, you're saying this person has existed and they lived right there, right? And they went yeah. to school over here, like, they walked these streets. So it's not Black history in this weird, ephemeral sense. It's like, no, no, no. Like, Scranton history, has black people in it. So if we're talking about black history, we're talking about Scranton history. And Mm -hmm. here are the street names, here are the people, here's when they lived and died, and like the fact that he died in 1950, like my mom was born in 53. Mm -hmm. So this isn't even ancient history, right? Like this is one, two generations removed at that, and no one knows it. So I love I love the vigor in which you tell the stories, but I love that you you put so many details in it that it's almost impossible for someone who wants to deny it. To do that, because it's like, wait, you said what street name? Oh, wait, I know someone who lives over there. Like, yeah. you're, you're detailing neighborhoods. And I've seen you, you know, out before saying, no, this building here was owned by this black person. You know, like this here was owned, And so I think it's amazing that that's that level of detail, because, again, we hear it with black history on a larger sense, on a national scale. Right. Like you hear about different churches where King spoke and every school claims to have the last place that King gave a speech at at some point in time and this and that. But you're talking about people's homes and neighborhoods where they grew up that, hey, there's actual history here, Mm -hmm. but also that you don't sugarcoat it. Right. Like they said, Negro, we don't want you here.
1: Right. And they raised that much money. I brought up the inflation calculator so I can Mm -hmm. give you what it is in
0: 2022.
1: (laughs) So $3,200 today is a little more than $93,000.
0: Wow. In cash.
1: Cash. In two weeks. That means people put up- a lot and that's like a neighborhood. I'm not talking about all of the white people in Scranton. Right. I'm donating to this cause. No, Prescott Avenue, they did that, and also I think that's also a reflection of the wealth that was over there at that time, right? Because they didn't even believe that uh, black people were even able to be in that tax bracket to afford to live over there.
0: That's crazy. So, hey, can you imagine just a door to door campaign that's not you know, Penn State's telethon? Raising ninety thousand dollars in two weeks just to get someone to leave,
1: just local press, just Scranton press, you know,
0: <laughs> that's crazy, that's crazy,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and so then, so moving from there, so you have all these stories and you're learning all these things, and you decide on creating a project called the Black Scranton Project. What is this,
1: yeah? So um, it started out as, but you're black, the overlooked <laughs> history of the black community mm-hmm. <laughs> of Scranton PA. That was the title of my graduate thesis. Um, and I really liked, but you're black, but I knew a lot of people wouldn't say that <laughs> and it's like a question and a statement. So I knew it wouldn't really go that far. Like I felt like it was a nice compelling title for a thesis, but I didn't know about a community project. So I was playing around, um, in 2017, when I moved back here, I was like, "What can I call this? Like, what can I call this so that way people understand what I'm talking about, and I can, you know, start saying the history without explaining the name?" So I figured "Black Scranton," "Black Scranton Project" would be good because I felt like Black Scranton is an identity, a culture, an experience, and a community altogether. I felt like it just it said what it needed to say in those three words. So that's how I chose Black Scranton Project. And I can remember specifically being like, all right, I'm going to use, I was so poor, I couldn't even pay my phone bill. But I was like, I'm going to just use my last $100 and buy all these stickers and make all these buttons. And I'm going to go to like the arts festival downtown. I didn't have a vendor's license. I just took, claimed one of the benches and sat all my stuff down there and do just sat there and told whoever wanted to come to the table and was like, you can have a sticker or a button for a dollar. People are giving me $5, $10, whatever. And I was like, wow, like people really care. And so that's kind of how it jumped off with the name and how I went from there. And I created a Facebook page and an Instagram page. as like a, a visual archive of sorts so I can start documenting and sharing these stories. So that's kind of how I came up with the name Black Scranton Project. And it didn't still go over easy. A lot of people don't like the name, but that's a their problem, not a right. our problem. And,
0: um, <laughs> well, they don't believe Black people are in Scranton, so your project right. can't and exist, right?
1: Racist. Or, you know, we can't call it white Scranton. I'm just like, but Scranton is white. We well, don't it, even yeah, it, it the
0: touch. white is silent in Scranton. <laughs> right, it is. <laughs> um, so then what is Black Scranton Project? So I know I know what it is. I'm not going to say anything. So you tell me, what is Black Scranton Project? So what have you done? How, how has it evolved from But You're Black to what it is today?
1: So Black Scranton Project is a local heritage initiative, and we are dedicated to archiving, celebrating, and sharing the local Black history of the Scranton area. So I extend and I'm trying to extend it beyond uh, the boundaries of Scranton PA because there's a lot of um really interesting history across northeastern Pennsylvania. So that's basically our our mission statement, but alongside of the archival work, um we do a lot to spotlight local business, local black businesses and entrepreneurs and artists and students and just shed light on the community and what we're doing here. Um and I think that kind of has been what brought a lot of attention to it because Mm -hmm. um, no one has really thought about what our community is doing. And um, I really felt like my first big project that I did was creating the black business directory because Mm -hmm. I was like, I like to patron black businesses as much as possible. I know there's a few here. And anytime I visit a city, that's my first Google search. Where are the black owned restaurants? (laughs) Where's the black owned bookstore? Like where Where, is the black owned, whatever. Like I want to know, I want to (laughs) go visit it. I want to see. So I can only imagine, you know, getting off the bus, waiting to go, you know, your next stop or whatever, or just visiting because you're visiting and wanting to know, like, that's a resource that you can use and like, check it out and see what's around. And in 2020, that resource really blew up. Like what the, you know, the Black Lives Matter, the rise of that, everyone wanted to support Black businesses. And I was really glad that I had that because it didn't, it wasn't popular. No one really cared when I
0: first started. (laughs) I cared I cared. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and even some black owned businesses to no fault of their own. Like I would approach them and I really made sure that anyone that was on our directory, I asked them, I didn't just put them up there. I wanted mm-hmm. them to be aware that the, the resources there and that I was doing it to highlight and celebrate their businesses. And when I w- approached all the businesses that I knew, a couple of them at the time were like, you know what? I don't want to be on this list because I don't want to look like I only cater to black people. And I would try to explain to them, like, that's definitely not what it is. And it's so that we can support you and other people that want to support black businesses do. But it's a common thing that in this area, people are afraid to identify as a black business because they're afraid they're going to lose patrons. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to know. Like, and it, it kind of was saddening to me because it sucks that they have to care about their business and like that is a strategy that they had to take look ambiguous and not black and you know if if that's how you have to pay the bills and like be a a successful business then that's what you have to do and luckily you know a year or two later most of those businesses were like yeah i want to be on the directory and obviously you can i was never mad at your decision you have to do what you have to do but it was a surprising thing to note that like they had to say to me as another black person who wanted to like Get you some more free exposure to be like, eh, I don't know if that will respond well, you know, for what I'm trying to do over here. So,
0: well, and you know, and I think that's one of the things that that speaks to running a business as a person of color, regardless of what that color is, and and how do you choose to identify? Because there are a lot of people who will use your business and buy your products. And they don't want to think of you as an individual, right? They don't want to see you as a Black business owner or a Hispanic business owner. You're just the person who gives them what they want. And I think that there's a there's a whole other thread to go down. And when we look at the idea of how we treat people and how we want to think of them, and, if, and as a Black business owner, there was a long time where I didn't shy away from it, but my face wasn't on my website mm-hmm. because I routinely live in communities just because of my work that are predominantly white and i don't want to lose white business right because often i don't get enough black business but it's the flip side of well if my face was on there you might get more black business and it's like well look at the population right Mm -hmm. where's the money going to fall from and so that was a big concern and i think you're right i think the last two years in america has sort of shed some light on that it's been like you know what you don't want to buy it from me i don't need you there are other people who are willing to support me. So um, and I think that the directory worked as a great landing spot for that because people were like, you know what, actually we do want to support Black-owned businesses. Where do we go? And luckily you already had the traffic there because it was already up and running. So um, outside of you know Black businesses and in the cultural heritage, what else is Black Scranton doing?
1: Well, we are opening a Center for Arts and Culture, very huge project. But a project that I am most proud of currently, (laughs) Um, we have one of the, I will say, the most beautiful building in the city of Scranton. Um, PNC donated their uh, former bank facility to our organization to turn it into a community center. So that is where I have been spending a lot of my time, energy and money is to try and make that happen. <laughs> um, not necessarily my own money, but, um, great, thankful and grateful for donors and sponsors and all those people that, you know, put their energy and money and resources behind it. Um, so we're working on that. Um, there's really no open, real open date, but I'm trying to have it open to a degree for February. So we're just seeing, um, because the property wasn't uh, in use for five years, it needs a lot of TLC. So that's what I'm just trying to do. And getting to know a building that's almost 100 years old is also its own challenge. But I'm (laughs) looking forward to having a community space that is for us by us. So if anyone that looks like us wants to have a baby shower or like a graduation party, or like, just wants to come hang out and like play games or like, do some research or read or whatever come to some of our events like we'll have a space for it and I was motivated to do that because as someone who likes to create community events I've been turned down in almost every space that you can think of right and I just felt like instead of begging people and doing all these silly dances to be able to do barely what I want to (laughs) do I'm gonna just go after it myself and um It's a testament to if you believe it, you literally can achieve it um, because no one thought that PNC was going to donate this building to this young black woman who has this new nonprofit and this crazy idea. No one, no one, (laughs) my attorney, nobody. They're like, well, you can try. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. So I spent two weeks, no sleep writing this beautiful proposal, printed it out, um, gave it to them. I mailed it to them and I set up a meeting with my attorney and they talked, they're like, we'll get back to you. And they basically like, we'll just communicate with your attorney from this point forward. Several months later, they're like, we'll consider the donation. Several months after that, they're like, we're going to donate it to you. So um, it was kind of like a mysterious sort of, exchange donation, but it <laughs> happened and um shout out to pnc and the regional directors who believed in the project and actually is a financial institution that actually wants to try to make change and give a hand up not necessarily a hand out and so right. i really appreciate pnc for all their support and believing in myself and my organization so
0: and i don't uh, want to gloss over the fact that they donated this building like they
1: donated you it, have
0: yeah. a three-story Bank, like old school limestone, like
1: nineteen twenty six bank.
0: <laughs> and like, I don't want people to realize that this isn't a small building, one of these newer little banks. With a, like this is a humongous building, vault, in all, and it's,
1: square feet of just oh. stone, marble, and steel. <laughs>
0: It is glorious, but it is, yeah, it's the fact that they donated that and that that's, that's what Black grant gets to call home is amazing work. So, but it's and a I'll testament. I'll say it wasn't
1: free. Around. It was not right. by no means free, but yeah, it, was it was not, not the price tag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: not free, but still.
1: But it was still donated. And um, I am proud to say that our nonprofit, like we literally own the bank, we own the land, Mm -hmm. um, and it is tax free for us because we are a nonprofit and we plan to do great things over there. So that was also not an easy thing because if you know anything about Scranton and taxes and property, um, they don't want to take any properties off of the property tax rolls, but, (laughs) um, they were, you know, the County, I had several meetings and, you know, persuaded them and they all thought it was a great idea. So, um, like I said, if you have a goal, a dream, an idea, first of all, if you can envision yourself being there, it could happen. And if you put in the work and you really, really put the work in and you really block out all of the naysayers, I truly, genuinely believe you can have whatever you want in this world. And just off of last year, I feel like I could literally do whatever I want to do now, <laughs> Um because of that. And I tell everybody that I'm like, you could do it. Like, if you want me to be your cheerleader, I will make sure that you get up at 5 a.m. If you really want this shit, I will make sure
0: <laughs> to do it. <laughs> That's awesome. And so in thinking about Black history, why why is the work you're doing so important? Why is And literally, for most, of the, for most of the country, most listeners outside of the office, Scranton is a blip on the map, right? But why is this so important that you said to your local community, we've been here? And yeah. I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to put it in front of you and make you understand that we have been here and we're a part of this community. Why is that important?
1: Because I just think about the young Black kids who were born and raised here and then this to be their quote unquote home. Mm-hmm. And even for me, like, just recently, too, like my relatives that are from out of state, they'll come visit and they're like, "Oh, like why did your parents stay here? Like Scranton is whack and da 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 da." And I had to tell them, "I'm like, do you know what that meant to me as a little girl when you would come visit our city and talk crap about it every second that you were there and talked about how you couldn't wait to go back? How that impacts me and how I feel about where I have no choice to live, grow up, go to school, and be and grow into an adult? Do you know how that affected me? So for me, I feel like it's important that. There is this history there. Not everyone's going to care about it. That's for for a fact. But I think it's important for young black kids, especially to feel like, hey, like I can be, you know, like I can be whatever I want to be. Like if I'm a naturalized citizen, I could be the first anything like there were black firemen out here. There was a whole black fire department that now doesn't exist. There's not even as many firemen currently as there was in the 1880s, you know, like, mm-hmm. and that was in Scranton. I think there were so many beautiful ways in which the black community here was striving tooth and nail to create a foundation for a thriving black community that we no longer remember. And I think it's remarkable because a lot of these um, activists that we have in this community works right alongside MLK, works mm-hmm. right alongside uh, all these other big figures, um, Frederick Douglass, even in fact, the black community here, when Frederick Douglass passed away, the black community went up to City Hall and said, We need to have, we need to make a proclamation to have the day of his death um Frederick Douglass Day here in the city of Scranton. They were able to pass it through city council and that actually exists. And no what? one even knows about that because who cares? Because the black people tried to do it, you know? That's and crazy I'm like, wow. That. Frederick Douglass came and spoke in Scranton two to two or three times, I believe. All mm-hmm. documented here. And, you know, it's just wild to think that like Scranton was literally in direct conversation and also, yeah, it was like in direct conversation with a lot of the social movements and the, the black freedom struggle. Honestly, the black community was part of it. And now we have no idea about it. And if there wasn't a systematic like effort to suppress the black community, it would be safe to say that Scranton could have just had a strong black community like Philadelphia. Right. Like like, like a Pittsburgh, you know, in Pennsylvania, we could have been just there. It just, there were so many ways in which our city kind of suppressed that and I'm trying to continue to still prove that. So if that answers your question. Oh, it, does, it does, That's why it's important. <laughs> I, I feel like if I knew these things, if someone was, if there was a young black girl when I was, a young black woman when I was in school that was like, I want to come to your middle school just to talk to an hour about like some black history just so y'all know it was here. I would be like, wow, like that is kind of cool. And like, you're from here and you're like doing these things. Like, I just think it's cool for me to be a role model as much as people like to not be role models. I think it's cool <laughs> that young people can see how limitless they are through me. Mm-hmm. And I love that. That's honestly what fuels me. Um, actually, right before Christmas, the Scranton Fringe Festival had their little winter market and showcase out in um, in downtown Scranton, this young black boy came up to me. He's a, he's a student at Scranton high school. He came up to me. He was like, you're Glennis Johns. I'm like, yeah, I am. He's like, I just want to let you know, you're so inspiring. I started to like getting to poetry and publish like my poetry on like social justice and activism. And I've been doing a lot more activism work because of you. And I just really admire all the things that you're doing. And like, you've inspired me to take up more acting and public speaking because seeing you do it made me realize like I can do it too. And I was just, didn't want to cry in front of this boy, but I was like, oh my <laughs> God, thank you so much. Like, that is insane. Like, I didn't know. I'm just out here doing what I think is right. And people are seeing it. Young people are seeing it. And that's all I ever really wanted. That's the reason why I started, that's the reason why I came back here in 2017. And it was like, hey, we could do it. And like, you, you have value. And I think mm-hmm. the last piece of that is, there are so many people outside of your your um, support system and your family that tell you you can't do it. And like, even in the schools here, like I've watched it happen to myself. I have a twin brother and seeing how they treated him and basically forced him out of the school. it's It's just wild to me, like that they do that and we don't see it. And so I just really wanted to um, get in front of these students and remind them like you don't have to listen to these teachers. like I'll tell students all the time. like you do not have to listen to them. You can be the person that you want to be. and your level of intelligence is not is not made up by these folks here. like you can literally be who you want to be. so, yeah, that's why that's why I continue to keep going after it and keep um, creating space for us and keep speaking for us because. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm it's important and um, I'm grateful to be able to take up that space and like really be that person for our community. Cause like we've literally never had anyone who was like, you know what, this isn't right. Like, why not? Like, why can't we be doing these things? Like, why can't we be here? Why can't we know these things? Why don't we believe this is possible? Why is it that there's still inequity in housing? Why is it that students are still performing way below the national average, and especially our black and brown students, why? Like we have to start asking these questions for it to get better.
0: No, I agree hundred um, percent. And so in feeding off that then, I'm sure that across the map there are many other communities that are very similar to Scranton, where it's predominantly white, where mm-hmm. there is a rich Black history that's been suppressed, and that's an entire different podcast I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, systematically, you know, things have been sort of buried away. What? What? How can people emulate this going forward? You know, if someone hears this, someone, who, a young person, is like, "Well, what is the Black history of my town?" how do they begin you know where where should they be looking what resources what words do you have for them
1: yeah i would definitely tell anyone interested to start dipping their toe into this world um get a subscription for Mm newspapers.com and then start doing some general searches in any era in your in the newspaper database you'd be surprised that's been like my best resource honestly and I think shout out to technology because I also have the experience of getting that microfilm, sitting in the library for hours and reading <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of pages to find one valuable sentence. So with you know the advancement of technology, you can type in keywords, you can type in like, I don't know. And it depends on the era. So there'll be different words that work. So if you type in like Negro, Tawanda, Pennsylvania, you know, and see what comes up, in the 1880s, 1890s, because that was the terminology that the newspapers used to describe people of color, black people specifically, and read what it says. And everything's not gonna come jump off the page for you. You're gonna have to do a little bit of reading, but I think it's really interesting to type in names, to type in locations, to type in businesses and addresses, and even different times or special events from different eras. Um, A lot of newspapers, millions of papers are now digitized on that platform. So I always tell people to check it out there. They have like a seven-day free subscription um, to just try it out. But I have the most advanced one because, you know, I did. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I have thousands of newspaper clippings now. Oh my gosh. But that's my favorite resource. That's where I found out most of these stories. And it's really interesting to me is to see the language that is used in papers, especially to mm-hmm. describe Black people. And one thing that I dislike the most, but is very common across the United States is how they talk about Black people and how they automatically just see us as like violent um, savages and like um, not even citizens or residents or humans. And I think that also plays into how we, perceive people of color now because it's been so baked into the way that we see
0: ourselves
1: honestly the way that we see our community so if they're always calling us like the the dark side of the town or like you know (laughs) the the areas that need to be cleaned up is like what they'll say and it's like which areas oh it's the areas where all the people of color are living in the worst housing available we want to clean that up and all these things. So yeah, I would just tell people to check out newspapers.com, type in names. You could even look and see if your relatives are in there. I found other people's relatives. I love to do stuff like that too, where people are like, can you help me find something, 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 or, and I'll just do it. Or I'll see something on television that'll like make me want to look something up. I'll go right to newspapers.com and see what I can find. So great resource.
0: All right, so newspapers aren't dead. Um, nope. <laughs> and I've
1: so I read more newspapers from a uh, hundred years ago than the papers now, and I read the paper almost every day. So that's <laughs> saying a lot.
0: <laughs> and so, outside of the, you know doing the research, you didn't start. You're not a history major, right? This isn't what you wanted to be doing. What you know? What other ways outside of digging this up? Because you this isn't where you saw yourself going. Mm-hmm. You know what spark? If someone has this in them, you know what other things can they be looking at as well?
1: Yeah. So this wasn't my initial pursuit um, for education but i did actually go pursue my phd for two semesters and i ended up dropping out um because i was trying to build black grant in a community community center simultaneously mm. so that didn't work out but um 2019 and early 2020 i was at rutgers university trying to get my phd in african american history mm. best two semesters of my life also the hardest two semesters of my life um but i digress uh
0: what was your original question? Sorry. Oh, just, I just like that. No, no, that's fine. Just outside of like, you know, digging through newspapers, what other ways, if so, this has sparked something in someone, what other ways can they be looking up local history and trying to figure out who was mm-hmm. actually there?
1: Visit your um, local historical societies. They love when people visit. You know, safely, obviously, if it wasn't right. a pandu doo that we're living in. But um, yeah, visit your or give them a call. Your your local historical societies. Check out your library. Most libraries have local archives anyway, so you can look. Um, I love looking at uh, school yearbooks. Those are also good places to see. Especially if you live in a predominantly white neighborhood or community or city, that's a good place to kind of get an idea of like at least what class sizes look like or at least what like really how many black students were in per classes. So those are I always recommend those first as institutions that you can check out and see um, if you're just curious or you want to see like, you know, uh, primary sources or really like see things firsthand. I would definitely go there. And yeah. most libraries and historical societies are always eager to help people.
0: Right. Nope. Agreed. So, um, Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, so thank you for your time. Is there anything else you want to leave people with? Any nugget of knowledge or wisdom? Any last story that you want to share with anyone?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, see, I love to talk, so I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so you can find myself and my organization on the interwebs at Black Scranton on all social media. You can check out our archive blog on our website, blackscranton.org, if you want to read some other stories. Um, I mean I could I could leave us out with a another story. Yeah that works. Um, That's perfect. Hmm. What should I talk about? Um, my favorite, one of my favorite people who's been one of the most inspiring women to me who I've never met, uh, Mrs. Louise Tanner Brown. Um, she actually took over her husband's business in 1926 when he passed away. I mentioned the business earlier in the first story, G.W. Brown Dray & Co., which is like a trucking and hauling company. It was um, established by George W. Brown in 1888 Um, he was a local resident life resident, pretty much of Northeastern Pennsylvania. He was born in, well, actually I'm kidding. He was born in Kent, Maryland. Then he moved here as a child to the Wilkes-Barre area and then moved to Scranton. So anyway, that's besides the point. He died in 1926 and his wife, Mrs. Louise Tanner Brown took over his business and made it even more successful. Um, so Around the 1930s, they were grossing around seventy-two thousand dollars a year in revenue, which is more than a million dollars in today's money. So I like to think of her as like one of the first black female millionaires in the city of Scranton. (laughs) She was a boss lady. She valued education, and she was also heavily involved in Bethel AME Church. She cared about education and making sure the babies were educated and taken care of because local local school, public schools aren't like today. It wasn't like you didn't have to go. You could just go if you wanted to. And most black kids were not going to school. So she's making sure that they, you know, had their rudimentary skills. She was doing um, some etiquette classes from her home. Um, So many things. She was featured in like Ebony Magazine, the Crisis Magazine for being like the most successful businesswoman in NEPA. So many features. She loved arts and culture and music. She threw the best parties. The newspapers always talked about how she was like, had the swankiest parties. She had great style. She had a beautiful speaking voice and she just did so many incredible things. Um, She also was like the leading advocate for black women um, during the Women's Suffrage Act of the 1920s. So she was heavily pushing to make sure that women, black women specifically had the ability to vote and did vote. Um, So she did so many things in the community and would write about a lot of things. She also, like I said, loved arts and culture. So she would often recite poetry by famous poets like Paul Laurence Dunbar, um, who's known as one of the most famous first black poets in the United States, if I'm getting that correct. She was also friends with him and he came to visit her in Scranton several times, but that's besides the point. She (laughs) would read a lot of his um, poetry and um, because most people, most black people, during that time in the early 1900s, were illiterate. A lot of folks couldn't really read or write. So she used that as an opportunity to read and recite um, popular culture of the area, which which would be stories, um, poems, music, all of those things. She would put on plays and productions, just making sure that we had culture here and were just abreast with whatever else was going on. And so I love her for that. And I tried to do a lot of the things that she had tried to instill and like put out into the community. A lot of the things that, um, that sustained the black community came from her. A lot of people don't know that the Progressive Center, which is the United Neighborhood Centers, was basically started by black people, including her and her family business, which funded most of it. So I say all that to say, Um, the black community supported itself. That's kind of not a new thing, but in the Scranton area, all of the charitable organizations did not cater to the black community. So it was up for ourselves to take care of us. And because this was a successful business, that's what her and her husband pretty much did. Um, resources from their business actually went to go build Bethel AME church in the night. When was that built? Uh, the 1910s, I believe they built that building. So Mm -hmm. yeah, all of that has to do with her and her successful business basically sustained us. And if it wasn't for their business and their advocacy and literally her and her husband building up the foundation of this black community, who knows if any of us would honestly be living here because what was here. (laughs) So I love her for that. Um, And I think that she is incredible and I want there to be like a monument about her and the work that she's done and Governor Tom Wolf actually reached out to me a couple years ago because they were looking for women across the state of Pennsylvania to spotlight for being game changers in the state and I, you know, mentioned her and she was part of this like state exhibit and that was pretty cool
0: so that's awesome. Wow, well, thank you for the work that you do. I think that Louise Tena Brown would see you today and pretty much be an honor that you know you remembered her and that the work you're doing, I think, is really carrying on her legacy. So thank you, Glennis, for your time. um and that's it. So thanks.
1: Well, thank you, Dan. I think the work that you're doing is also really great and needed and very inspiring. So I appreciate you for building this podcast and telling these types of stories.
0: Oh, you're too kind. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists.